Chapter 11 of In the Oregon Country. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Theoden Humphrey. In the Oregon Country by George Palmer Putnam. The God Mountain of Puget Sound. Part 1. Less than fifty years ago, what is now Seattle numbered scarce a thousand inhabitants, and the present city of Tacoma was a cluster of shacks about a sawmill. Puget Sound, today a highway of commerce, was an almost unknown inland sea, its waters furrowed only by the prows of Indian canoes. But for centuries beyond number, the great mountain of Puget Sound has been as it is today, the mountain beautiful dominating all the sound country. In Seattle, its name is Rainier, and Tacoma insists the city's title is the mountains as well. Call it what you will, today. Yesterday, in the talk of the Indian fishers of Wolga, it was known as Tacoma, a word generically applied to snow mountains. No truly great mountain in America is as readily accessible and as widely enjoyed as Tacoma Rainier. To Seattle and Tacoma, it is an ever-present companion, and all the Puget Sound country basks in its shadow. A most excellent automobile road winds through its forests up to the snowfields, the only highway on this continent which actually reaches a living glacier. Railroads go close to the mountain, and a delightful hotel and several camps supply every inducement and comfort for luxurious stays in close proximity to the final peak. From these places as headquarters, one may make countless excursions round about the mountain over magnificently beautiful trails, seeing its glaciers, its forests, its flowers, and its surpassing views, and there are always guides ready to lead the way to the top, an ascent which offers all the thrills and most of the experiences of the most arduous mountaineering in the Alps. In short, there is an almost limitless field of recreation round about Tacoma Rainier, and it is but for you to choose the mode of your enjoyment. Seeing this mountain that was God, and climbing it, are matters of almost normal routine to the residents of the Puget Sound country, and the visitors to its sister cities. It is the accepted thing to do, and one supremely worthwhile. But to add another account of an ascent of Tacoma Rainier, or detailed description of its wonders, to the many already in print, would be, indeed, carrying coals to Newcastle. So, recommending you to the several excellent books on the subject, instead of essaying further description of the mountain today, I'll venture to repeat what appeals to me as the best of the many Indian legends relating to it. The wording of the story is that of Theodore Winthrop in his book The Canoe and Saddle, from which in a previous chapter I borrowed the delightful legend of the Dalles. The story, says Winthrop, was told to him by Hamachu at Nisqually, presumably about 1860, and here is his interpretation. Avarice, O Boston Tyee, quoth Hamachu, studying me with dusky eyes, is a mighty passion. Now, be it known unto thee that we Indians anciently used not metals, nor the money of you blanketeers. Our circulating medium was shells, 
Wampum, you would name it. Of all wampum, the most precious is Hayakwa. Hayakwa comes from the far north. It is a small, perforated shell, not unlike a very opaque quill toothpick, tapering from the middle and cut square at both ends. We string it in many strands and hang it around the neck of one we love, namely, each man his own neck. We also buy with it what our hearts desire. He who has most Hayakwa is best and wisest and happiest of all the northern Hayata and of all the people of Wolga. The mountain horsemen value it. The braves of the terrible Blackfeet have been known in the good old days to come over and offer a horse or a wife for a bunch of fifty Hayakwa. Now, once upon a time, there dwelt where this fort of Nisqually now stands, a wise old man of the Squaliamish. He was a great fisherman and a great hunter, and the wiser he grew, much the wiser he thought himself. When he had grown very wise, he used to stay apart from every other Siwash. Companionable salmon boilings round a common pot had no charms for him. Feasting was wasteful, he said, and revelers would come to want. And when they verified his prophecy and were full of hunger and empty of salmon, he came out of his hermitage and had salmon to sell. Hayakwa was the pay he always demanded, and as he was a very wise old man and knew all the tideways of Volga, and all the enticing ripples and placid spots of repose in every river where fish might dash or delay, he was sure to have salmon when others wanted, and thus bagged largely of its precious equivalent, Hayakwa. Not only a mighty fisher was the sage, but a mighty hunter, and elk, the greatest animal of the woods, was the game he loved. Well had he studied every trail where elk leave the print of their hoofs, and where, tossing their heads, they bend the tender twigs. Well had he searched through the broad forest, and found the long-haired prairies where elk feed luxuriously, and there, from behind palisade fir trees, he had launched the fatal arrow. Sometimes, also, he lay beside a pool of sweetest water, revealed to him by gemmy reflections of sunshine gleaming through the woods, until at noon the elk came down, to find death awaiting him as he stooped and drank. Or beside the same fountain the old man watched at night, drowsily starting at every crackling branch, until, when the moon was high and her illumination declared the pearly water, elk dashed forth incautious into the glade, and met their midnight destiny. Elk meat, too, he sold to his tribe. This brought him pelf, but, alas for his greed, the pelf came slowly. Waters and woods were rich in game. All the Squaliamish were hunters and fishers, though none so skilled as he. They were rarely absolutely in want, and, when they came to him for supplies, they were far too poor in Hayakwa. So the old man thought deeply, and communed with his wisdom, and while he waited for fish or beast, he took advice within himself from his demon. He talked 
with Taminoas. And always the question was, how may I put Hyakwa in my purse? Taminoas never revealed to him that far to the north, beyond the waters of Volga, are tribes with their underlip pierced with a fish bone, among whom Hyakwa is plenty as salmon berries are in the woods, that time in midsummer, salmon fin it along the reaches of Volga. But the more Taminoas did not reveal to him these mysteries of nature, the more he kept dreamily prying into his own mind, endeavoring to devise some scheme by which he might discover a treasure trove of the beloved shell. His life seemed wasted in the patient, frugal industry, which only brought slow, meager gains. He wanted the splendid elation of vast wealth and the excitement of sudden wealth. His own particular Taminoas was the elk. Elk was also his totem, the cognizance of his Freemasonry with those of his own family and their family friends in other tribes. Elk, therefore, were every way identified with his life, and he hunted them farther and farther up through the forests on the flanks of Tacoma, hoping that some day his Taminoas would speak in the dying groan of one of them and gasp out the secret of the minds of Hayakwa, his heart's desire. Tacoma was so white and glittering that it seemed to stare at him very terribly and mockingly, and to know his shameful avarice, and how it led him to take from starving women their cherished lip and nose jewels of Hayakwa, and to give them in return only tough scraps of dried elk meat and salmon. When men are shabby, mean, and grasping, they feel reproached for their groveling lives by the unearthliness of nature's beautiful objects, and they hate flowers and sunsets, mountains and the quiet stars of heaven. Nevertheless, continued Hamachu, this wise old fool of my legend went on stalking elk along the sides of Tacoma, ever dreaming of wealth. And at last, as he was hunting near the snows one day, one very clear and beautiful day of late summer, when sunlight was magically disclosing far distances and making all nature supernaturally visible and proximate, Taminoas began to work in the soul of the miser. "'Are you brave?' whispered Taminoas in the strange, ringing, dull, silent, thunder tones of a demon voice. "'Dare you go to the caves where my treasures are hid?' "'I dare,' said the miser. He did not know that his lips had syllabled a reply. He did not even hear his own words. But all the place had become suddenly vocal with echoes. The great rock against which he leaned crashed forth, I dare! Then all along through the forest, dashing from tree to tree, and lost at last among the murmuring of breeze-shaken leaves, went careering his answer, taken up and repeated scornfully, I dare! And after a silence, while the daring one trembled, 
and would gladly have ventured to shout for the companionship of his own voice. There came across from the vast snow wall of Tacoma a tone like the muffled, threatening plunge of an avalanche into a chasm. I dare! You dare, said Taminoas, enveloping him with the dread sense of an unseen, supernatural presence. You pray for wealth of Hayakwa. Listen. This injunction was hardly needed. The miser was listening with dull eyes kindled and starting. He was listening with every rusty hair separating from its unkempt mattedness, an outstanding upright, a caricature of an aureole. Listen, said Taminoas in the noonday hush. And then Taminoas vouchsafed at last the great secret of the Hyakwa mines. While in terror near to death, the miser heard, and every word of guidance toward the hidden treasure of the mountains seared itself into his soul ineffaceably. Silence came again, more terrible now than the voice of Taminoas. Silence under the shadow of the great cliff. Silence deepening down the forest vistas. Silence filling the void up to the snows of Tacoma. All life and motion seemed paralyzed. At last, Sky Key, the blue jay, the wise bird, foe to magic, sang cheerily overhead. Her song seemed to refresh again the honest laws of nature. The buzz of life stirred everywhere again, and the inspired miser rose and hastened home to prepare for his work. When Taminoas has put a great thought into a man's brain, has whispered him a great discovery within his power, or hinted at a great crime, that spiteful demon does not likewise suggest the means of accomplishment. The miser, therefore, must call upon his own skill to devise proper tools, and upon his own judgment to fix upon the most fitting time for carrying out his quest. Sending his squaw out to the Camas Prairie, under pretense that now was the season for her to gather their store of that sickish, sweet, esculent root, and that she might not have her squaw's curiosity aroused by seeing him at strange work, he began his preparations. He took a pair of enormous elk horns and fashioned from each horn a two-pronged pick or spade by removing all the antlers except the two topmost. He packed a good supply of kippered salmon and filled his pouch with kinnikinnick for smoking in his black stone pipe. With his bows and arrows and his two elk horn picks wrapped in buckskin hung at his back, he started just before sunset as if for a long hunt. His old, faithful, maltreated, blanketless, vermilionless squaw, returning with baskets full of camas, saw him disappearing moodily down the trail. All that night, all the day following, he moved on noiselessly by paths he knew. He hastened on, unnoticing outward objects, as one with controlling purpose hastens. Elk and deer, bounding through the trees, passed him, 
but he tarried not. At night he camped just below the snows of Tacoma. He was weary, and chill night airs blowing down from the summit almost froze him. He dared not take his fire sticks, and, placing one perpendicular upon a little hollow on the flat side of the other, twirl the upright stick rapidly between his palms until the charred spot kindled and lighted his tipsu, his dry, tindery wool of inner bark. A fire, gleaming high upon the mountainside, might be a beacon to draw thither any night-wandering savage to watch in ambush and learn the path toward the mines of Hyakwa. So he drowsed, chilly and fireless, awakened often by dread sounds of crashing and rumbling among the chasms of Tacoma. He desponded bitterly, almost ready to abandon his quest, almost doubting whether he had in truth received a revelation, whether his interview with Tamanoas had not been a dream, and finally whether all the Hyakwa in the world was worth this toil and anxiety. Fortunate is the sage who at such a point turns back and buys his experience without worse befalling him. Past midnight, he suddenly was startled from his drowse and sat bolt upright in terror. A light! Was there another searcher in the forest? And a bolder than he? That flame just glimmering over the treetops. Was it a campfire? Of friend or foe? Had Taminoas been revealing to another the great secret? No, smiled the miser, his eyes fairly open, and discovering that the new light was the moon. He had been waiting for her illumination on paths heretofore untrodden by mortal. She did not show her full, round, jolly face, but turned it askance, as if she hardly liked to be implicated in this night's transactions. However, it was light he wanted, not sympathy, and he started up at once to climb over the dim snows. The surface was packed by the night's frost, and his moccasins gave him firm hold. Yet he traveled but slowly, and could not always save himself from a glissade backwards, and a bruise upon some projecting knob or crag. Sometimes upright fronts of ice diverted him for long circuits, or a broken wall of cold cliff arose, which he must surmount painfully. Once or twice he stuck fast in a crevice, and hardly drew himself out by placing his bundle of picks across the crack. As he plodded and floundered thus deviously and toilsomely upward, at last the wasted moon paled overhead, and underfoot the snow grew rosy with coming dawn. The dim world over the mountain's base displayed something of its vast detail. He could see, more positively than by moonlight, the far-reaching arteries of mist marking the organism of Wolga beneath, and what had been but a black chaos now resolved itself into the alpine forest whence he had come. But he troubled himself little with staring about. Up he looked, for the summit was at hand. To win that summit 
was well nigh the attainment of his hopes, if Taminoas were true. And that, with the flush of morning ardor upon him, he could not doubt. There, in a spot Taminoas had revealed to him, was Hyakwa. Hyakwa that should make him the richest and greatest of all the Squaliamish. End of chapter 11